Welcome to the fourth episode in the first season of Justice Center Weekly. Joining me today is John Carpe, president and founder of the Center. John, I understand you're set to testify at the National Citizens Inquiry into Canada's COVID-19 response at 1 p.m. on Friday, April 28th in Red Deer. What is this all about? So these hearings in Red Deer, Alberta that are, are taking place uh, through to Friday, April the 28th are part of a cross-Canada tour. The hearings have already been held in Ontario, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, BC next week, May 2nd, 3rd, 4th, um, at least those three days, possibly the 5th as well. And this National Citizens Inquiry is doing something very important, which our federal and provincial governments ought to have been doing themselves in the past three years uh, since March of 2020, when they started violating our charter rights and freedoms, namely the, the freedoms of association and expression, conscience, religion, peaceful assembly, mobility rights to, to travel, uh, the right to bodily autonomy, et cetera, et cetera. What the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms requires is that whenever a federal or provincial government violates any charter right or freedom, the government must demonstrably justify with evidence that that government policy is bringing about more good than harm. Now, I'm oversimplifying the legal test. The legal test was set down by the Supreme Court of Canada in a case from about 1986 uh, called uh, R. V. Oaks, and so it's a it's a quite it's a very complex, nuanced test. So I am oversimplifying it, but the bottom line is still that the government needs to demonstrably justify uh, any law, uh, policy, health order, regulation, any type of government action if it violates charter right or freedom. The onus is on the government to show that the benefits outweigh the harms. Governments have not been doing this since March of 2020. They have been blindly, uh, fanatically moving along with you know, first lockdowns and then later vaccine passports, uh, violating everybody's privacy, requiring everybody to disclose personal private medical information to total strangers, uh, all the travel restrictions. It's been a fanatical uh, approach where the government has already concluded ahead of time that the lockdown measures and vaccine passports and travel restrictions are wonderful and necessary. And governments in Canada, neither provincially nor federally, have they done what they're supposed to do, which is to carefully, thoughtfully uh, look at and weigh the, the, the harms and the benefits of lockdown measures. Okay, so how do you see your role in this inquiry? Uh, you're basically going to make recommendations to force them to do that or to bring about uh, changes that will make them do what they should have done all along? So on, on Friday the 28th in Red Deer, I will be um, making presentations about legislative changes. So changes that the federal parliament can make to federal legislation and that the provincial legislatures across Canada can make. Uh, so that for a future public health emergency, there are better laws on the books than the laws that were on the books in, in March of 2020, which, which have given way too much latitude to unelected, unaccountable chief medical officers to turn themselves into effectively behave like medieval monarchs who have absolute power over right. their citizens without any kind of scrutiny without any accountability, without any debate, without any legislative input, 
uh, we've been governed by, you know, Queen Dina Hinshaw in British Columbia and Queen Bonnie Henry in, uh, sorry, Queen Dina Hinshaw in Alberta and Queen Bonnie Henry in, in British Columbia and, and so on. These chief medical officers have, uh, have functioned like autocrats without accountability. So we need legislative changes. Right. I guess that's probably a pretty good segue to turn to the paper itself that you're going to be presenting. Uh, now, maybe you could start with your top recommendation right there. So at the top of the list, we need transparency with the public, which means that uh, federally and provincially, the parliament, provincial legislatures need to change the laws such that the chief medical officers and the health authorities will be required by law at all times to disclose the actual scientific papers, sources, documents, and data on which they rely. And this was strikingly absent the last three years. Uh, the word uh, the, the word science was being chanted over and over again, like like a mantra, uh, with all the claims that you know if if you uh, if you agree with me you're pro science, if you disagree with me you're anti science. We're all about science. Uh, all of these laws are based on science, and science became this slogan that was used to to beat people over the head with. But when you probed deeper and said, okay, can you tell me? what your sources are when, for example, uh, in, in Alberta, the uh, Kenny government on April the 8th, uh, 2020, released a paper, a fear-mongering modeling chart, predicting that even with lockdown measures in place, as many as 32,000 Albertans uh, could die of COVID. Well, I've asked, where do you base this 32,000 number on? It's higher than the total deaths from all sources, which is about 27,000 people per year, which you would expect in, in a province of uh, four and a half million. But here the government is, is fear-mongering, saying that, that 32,000 people could die of COVID, yet when they're asked, where do you come up with this number? Did, did you pull it out of thin air? Is it based on the Neil Ferguson models? How did you come up with this? You get no answers. And it's the same with so many uh, asymptomatic spread. The government insisted that COVID was spreading asymptomatically. So the people without any symptoms were all passing COVID around to each other. I've, I wrote to governments all over Canada. I said, where is, what's the scientific basis? Show me, show me the scientific evidence where it shows, where it backs up your position that COVID spreads amongst people without any symptoms. And you don't get anything. So this needs to change by law. I'm just wondering how difficult it would be to legislate disclosure like that. I guess that's the one thing you're trying to think about how it would actually work, but I guess that's really not our job. Our job is just to set them straight and they can figure out the details. Okay. Moving along then what, uh, what else have you got to recommend? So the government should use existing emergency response plans. Uh, we've become familiar with the world health organization, uh, having emergency response plans that were revised and updated in late 2019 and did not advocate the non-pharmaceutical interventions, i.e. the lockdowns were not part of that plan. It was a brand new experiment that was embarked upon for the first time in human history in March of 2020. And so we, we had plans, we didn't use plans. And so this needs to change. We need to um, use the existing emergency response plans that are already on the books, and they should only be departed from uh, if there are good reasons for doing so. In terms of how you translate this into law, Kevin, I'm glad you raised that point. Much of the language that's in this paper, uh, governments could cut and paste and put the language right into the public health legislation, which, which every person 
has, and there's federal legislation as well. But you are correct. Like the, 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 the fine tuning of the details of which pieces of legislation should be amended uh, and, and the specific wording. Um, every legislature has a team of uh, legislative drafting lawyers that are on staff that will be able to handle that. Right. Okay. I guess that would probably uh, be a good time now to bring up the third recommendation because that actually speaks to the actions of the legislat- legislatures themselves. So the, the declaration by the public health, uh, the chief medical officer, if he or she declares that there is a public health emergency, that needs to go for a debate before the federal parliament or the provincial legislature, uh, again, both levels. And the evidence that the chief medical officer has needs to be presented and made available to the MPs or you know, provincial MPPs, uh, MLAs, et cetera so that members of the parliament can see. There needs to be debate, there needs to be a free vote, and that uh, public health emergency, if it's approved by the parliament and or the provincial legislature, it stays in place for only 30 days, uh, at which time, if the uh, chief medical officer wants it to continue, you need to call the MPs, the MLAs back for another vote. And anybody who thinks that it's expensive to call a bunch of politicians back to the parliament, it is uh, a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of the cost of the the tens of billions, hundreds of billions of dollars uh, of economic destruction that were uh, inflicted on this country through lockdowns and through increases in public debt. So it, pretty small expense to get the MPs back to Ottawa, uh, to get the uh, provincial politicians back to the provincial capital. Right. So it sounds like no more executive rule then, uh, no more rule by just the cabinet and just, and the, uh, chief medical officer. I think that's what we're trying to do here, right? Exactly. In conjunction with that, uh, ongoing accountability, the chief medical officer needs to, and this again, federally. So it'd be, you know, Teresa Tam getting questioned by an all party committee of the House of Commons at least once a week, uh, having to answer questions, having to produce documents when they ask documents. Uh, same thing provincially in Victoria, Edmonton, Regina, Winnipeg, Toronto, uh, every provincial capital, the chief medical officer of the province uh, needs to be make himself or herself available to questioning by a uh, committee of members of the provincial legislature for questioning, and uh, and that includes having to uh, provide information subsequent to that hearing. So the chief medical officer might get asked, okay, wh- wh- where is your evidence to support your claim that you know this this virus is spreading asymptomatically? If the chief medical officer doesn't have that on hand immediately, he or she still has to pr- provide it, produce it, uh, and and make a commitment to say, okay, you know, I will get back to you on that and they can provide it next week. Right, and I assume that these documents have to be provided to the public as well through that committee. Absolutely. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I think that's one of the things. Yeah, and again, I go back to, we, we want to see the actual science. It's not good enough. In fact, it, it, it's evil to abuse science by using it as a slogan and using it as a slogan with which to, to beat people over the head. And, and as Dr. Fauci said in the United States, that to disagree with him is to disagree with science. I don't know if we've had a Canadian politician say that, but it's been the same attitude that, you know, if, if you if you disagree with these uh, harmful and destructive measures that, that you're anti-science, we have to get away from that. We want to see uh, the actual 
the actual scientific research, the peer-reviewed studies. We want to see those firsthand uh, so we can look at those ourselves. And there's no, there's no reason, there's no excuse for governments not to post those uh, on a website. They're, it's not doxing anybody. They don't contain you know, personal uh, information or names or addresses. It's, it's scientific research. It's public health. And uh, uh, so we, we need the legislative change to force the government to, to post that information on the websites. Good. Yeah, that's one thing I want to see. Because, of course, we had difficulty with that during the, uh, the pandemic, trying to find the uh, information. Um, although the Justice Centre, I recall, relied mostly on government information and government statistics, they still had a lot of trouble digging up stuff. Yeah, we, we, we made use. I'm not saying the governments didn't provide any information. There was some information uh, that, that, that was provided. And uh, cer- certainly the, in, in Alberta, for example, the COVID death statistics were very relevant, very informative, very helpful. They actually disproved the government's case. Uh, the, the government was basing its policies on the false premise that COVID is a serious threat to the entire population. Uh, which is false. COVID is a serious threat to uh, elderly people with uh, serious health conditions who are already sick. And the COVID mortality statistics prove this all the time, that um, you know people dying of COVID or people dying with COVID were uh, people uh, that, that were very elderly and, and, and very sick. So they, you know, 97% had one or two or three serious comorbidities, for example, so there was some government uh, information, but there was no government information uh, on, um, you know, historical evidence of successive lockdowns would be, well, I could think of dozens of examples where there's just no evidence to back up the government's policies. Right. That actually is a good introduction to the next point. <laughs> this is, uh, let me see, looking at the report, comprehensive reporting that weighs harms and benefits. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, this is what this is what the National Citizens Inquiry is, has been doing in in recent weeks, and will continue to do. It's what the governments ought to have done, and we should change the legislation to require governments to produce a monthly report that will actually talk about the impact of um, public health measures on physical health. So things like rates of obesity, rates of cancer, um, access to surgeries, access to diagnostic procedures. Uh, mental health, looking at rates of alcoholism, uh, drug abuse, drug overdoses, suicide, uh, spousal abuse, child abuse, uh, financial health, economic health of people. Uh, the monthly report by the government should include data on uh, unemployment, uh, rates of bankruptcies, business failures, homelessness. And so we need those monthly reports uh, and, and we need to legislate this to force governments to do this uh, because that forces the discussion. It, it, it forces governments to look at both the harms and costs of their policies as well as any benefits that might be coming from those policies. Yeah, it might be difficult, though, to get them to report bad news. I think that's always been the difficulty with uh, asking governments to report on themselves, you know, especially when you're talking about economic data. And I think that when you were talking about financial well-being, you were talking, I guess, also in the larger sense of macroeconomic data, like how is this going to impact the province, you know, and revenue for the year, that kind of thing. Well, absolutely. Absolutely. The 
legislation is important because it guides the executive. I mean, I, I cannot imagine for a moment that Prime Minister Trudeau would have consented to a public inquiry into his uh, declaration of a national emergency um, in respect of uh, peaceful protest in Ottawa. But it was the Emergencies Act itself, the legislation said that there must be an inquiry, an inquiry must take place. That was the legislation. Now, uh, if Canada moves further away from being a, a free and democratic society that respects the rule of law, uh, which means the governments also have to obey the law, if we move further away from that, then conceivably you could have governments simply ignoring the legislation. I suppose that could happen. That would be very bad. But with the Emergencies Act, the government actually complied with the legislation on that narrow point of holding a public inquiry, which did take place. So in similar fashion with these, uh, if you legislate a requirement that says that the government must research and produce and release to the public a monthly report, and here's, you know, uh, which must include the following, if that's legislated, uh, you have a higher chance of government doing it than uh, a situation where this is not on the books at all. I'm not looking ahead yet into the report, but since you brought it up, should we put into legislation the fact that, like the Emergencies Act, at the end of a public health emergency, the government is required to hold an inquiry to find out how they did? I mean, that might be an interesting because I noticed we don't have a government inquiry into Canada's COVID-19 response. We have a citizen's inquiry, so maybe we should be forcing the government to do it as well. Although, you know, I guess there are probably arguments uh, for doing it this way as well, right? No, it's a brilliant idea. I think um, seeing as time time of recording right now, I, I still have some wiggle room to make some changes to the submissions. I actually like the idea of, of uh, that, that when public health measures have been put in place, that there needs to be an inquiry uh, that, you know, taking place within a certain time period, whether six months or nine months or 12 months uh, after public health emergency ceases to exist. And there's no reason why that cannot be done uh, federally and provincially. Lord knows there are enough uh, federal government workers and provincial government workers to get the job done. Yeah. Need and, not be a lot of extra money. Right. And the impact, of course, was tremendous on the country. So uh, I think that it behooves us to gauge how we did. And that's why I think that this, uh, this inquiry is important. So perhaps uh, we should be doing this as a matter of legislation. Anyways, moving on to your recommendations as they exist before they're amended, just before. <laughs> so the right to bodily autonomy needs to be respected. Okay. So we need to amend our, uh, our human rights legislation to state expressly that a person cannot be discriminated against on the basis of his or her uh, prior medical decisions or future plans for medical treatments. And that should include uh, vaccines as well as any substance that is injected or ingested into the body. So we need that medical privacy where in the context of receiving goods and services from the public. So if I'm in a store or a restaurant or checking into a hotel, getting onto an airplane, uh, or you know, if one of my kids is going to university uh, any um, receipt of, of a good or a service uh, in, in the public realm, uh, there has to be that right to privacy, and it should be illegal for 
employers to discriminate uh, in hiring um, or advancement promotion uh, in regard to you know whether a person received a particular medical treatment. I mean, obviously, this is going back to mandatory vaccinations where uh, people were thrown out of work, students were expelled from university, people lost their jobs, uh, and a lot of people that didn't lose their jobs were pressured into getting an injection, which they did not want to receive. And uh, never again uh, should we go through this kind of vicious discrimination against people uh, based on a legitimate medical choice. And there, of course, was the denying of unemployment benefits as well. And that's uh, something that, well, I suppose if you weren't forced out of your job, you wouldn't need to be applying for unemployment benefits. Still, I don't think it's a legitimate reason to uh, deny somebody the benefit. But so you, you, you could federally and provincially, we have human rights legislation. So it would not be that difficult to add in. Uh, at, so along with, you know, you cannot discriminate on the basis of uh, gender, religion, skin color, uh, ethnicity, national origin, religion, et cetera, et cetera. You add to that list, you cannot discriminate based on uh, medical treatment, uh, including vaccination, which a person may or may not have received. Okay. And maybe there's better wording, right? They've got like the federal parliament, provincial legislatures have lawyers on staff whose full-time job it is, is to draft legislation. So they can come up with the right wording. But the point is you just amend the human rights legislation so that uh, denying somebody a job or denying somebody uh, a service, refusing to sell something to somebody, refusing to allow somebody to come into your restaurant, your hotel, board on your airplane, get onto your train, that this kind of thing becomes a Human Rights Act violation for which you can file a complaint and the complaint against party, uh, if they did discriminate on this basis, they've got to pay uh, you know, damages or some kind of compensation to the complainant. So we've got the, we've got the human rights legislation on the books. Let's amend it to really protect people in an area where uh, people were not protected in uh, 2021. Okay, uh, looking ahead now uh, to the penultimate recommendation, I can tell that this one's a real stink bomb. Uh, it is a big one, and you know it. It doesn't sound that uh, drastic, but you know, considering the amount of money that is, uh, I guess, handed around during these uh, moments of crisis, it's a big one. Go ahead, John. Tell us about it. So, proposed contracts. Uh, that are signed between governments and pharmaceutical companies must be made available to the public prior to being signed as well as after being signed by posting this information on a website. Again, there's no right to privacy. You know, you and I, if, if we had a, we had a business contract of, of, of some kind, you know, that's your business, my business, it's confidential and, and it would be inappropriate for, for anybody to ask that it be posted on the website. But when it involves the spending of tax dollars, billions of tax, tax dollars, or certainly millions in any event, um, it's the public's business. The public has a right to know. And so in conjunction with that, there should be no legislated liability for pharmaceuticals. If pharmaceuticals want the uh, advantage of earning fat profits, they have to, like everybody else, they have to also run the risk of liability in the same way that, you know, the car manufacturers, uh, they are profitable, at least some of them are, the ones that are still in business now are presumably are profitable and that's all well and good. 
Uh, but part and parcel of that is if there was a, uh, a, a design problem and the cars are mal malfunctioning and there's a recall and, you know, you can be sued, uh, doesn't mean the plaintiff's going to win. You can defend yourself and say that, that you know, you be behaved reasonably. In any event, there, there's no exemption from liability for other corporations and it should be no different for pharmaceutical corporations. If they want to uh, earn billions of profits or millions uh, paid for by tax dollars, then they need to uh, suck it up like everybody else and accept that uh, if they get sued for uh, problems with their product, which they ought reasonably to have known about, uh, again, a lawsuit's not going to guarantee success, but uh, the pharmaceutical companies have to accept that. Right. So they know uh, liability protection and transparency in the contracts. That's a big one. Anyways, uh, I can say you save the best for last. Let's go to the last one here and finish up for the day. So democratic accountability and access to justice. So a lot of the provincial legislatures largely shut down. Uh, they could have moved to Zoom uh, a, a lot earlier. Um, same with the federal parliament. I mean, for many months, the whole country was being run from the prime minister's cottage uh, who announced billions in spending from, uh, you know, from a summer cottage. Uh, the country was run by news releases. Parliament was effectively shunted away. That's not a way for a democracy to function. There has to be accountability there at all times, 365 days a year. In particular, if the government is responding to, um, to a public health emergency, public health crisis, that's all the more is the time when the federal parliament, provincial legislatures should be open and running and functioning. And so we need legislative change there uh, to see to it that the, uh, the public health emergency, it could be an excuse possibly for the MPs or the provincial politicians to not be, meet in person, perhaps, maybe, possibly, could be an excuse, but no excuse for, uh, for shutting down the proceedings. Right, yeah. If we can meet online, I'm sure they can as well. And you say access to justice here. Just uh, quickly give us uh, your thoughts on that. So the courts tragically and unnecessarily shut down to a large extent uh, in March of 2020. And there's no reason to to do that. Um, okay, granted, yes, maybe maybe it, it uh, you know would have taken a week or two or three or four to to get the technology set up to, to, to be uh, a bit better and, and to facilitate, facilitate the Zoom hearings. But court actions are court actions, whether it's criminal law, family law, civil litigation with, with individuals and corporations suing each other, constitutional law, administrative law, it uh, doesn't matter what area of law. Um, we cannot have a situation where people can't go to court anymore. Um, you know, th this is this is one of the things that makes our country special, a, a democracy governed by the rule of law. One feature, one aspect of that is that we solve our problems by going to court instead of using baseball bats. There are many countries in the world where you you cannot, you do not resolve your disputes, your conflicts by going to court. Uh, because the court system is so corrupt or it's not available or it's not part of the culture. 
uh, you know, judges are bribed uh, or judges do the government's bidding, et cetera. For any number of reasons, there are countries where uh, what really matters is you've got, you've got your own private army to throw your weight around. Uh, or if you're not rich enough to have a private army, people will resolve their disputes with baseball bats. And, you know, if the courts are not going to be there to uh, provide uh, a peaceful resolution to the conflicts of, you know, mom and dad are divorcing and they're fighting over access to the kids, or uh, you believe that somebody's cheated you out of a sum of money in a business contract, or, you know, you're suing the government over charter violations, or there's criminal proceedings with an accused person who claims to be innocent and a, a victim of crime who <laughs> says that the accused person is very, very guilty. You need to be able to take that before a court. So, um, yeah, it's just, it, it, uh, there's no excuse for courts kind of shifting into low gear and, and, and suddenly, uh, refusing to do a lot of work, which they had been doing previously, the work of judges, uh, most of the work, yes, there are court hearings, but for every hour that a judge spends in a courtroom, uh, he or she spends three, four, five, six hours out of the courtroom. Most of the judge's work is in, is done in, in their offices when they are reading cases, uh, researching the law, looking at the evidence. So there's really no excuse for, uh, for courts to slow down. Right. So courts should have an emergency plan as well. That's good. Okay. Yes. Well, great. Uh, thanks, John, for laying it out for us. And, uh, well, I look forward to seeing you in the tape on, at the inquiry. I don't know whether I'll be able to get down there to see you, but uh, it's, uh, I think, going to be a landmark day for the Justice Center. Thanks so much for participating in this episode of Justice Center Weekly. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Kevin. Have a great day.